I'm Liz Corey. And I'm Katie King. And this is True, True Crime New England. England. What's up, everybody? Hello. Welcome back to another episode. Thank you for joining us. We are so excited to have you here on episode 93. 90 fucking three. Yeah. That's crazy. It just sucks because we're going to stop at 100. No, just kidding. <laughs> we're too in. Too no, in we're deep. in deep now, guys. Yeah. We're in too deep now. While it would be nice to think of a vacation, it's not happening. We're here for you. God, not till December 2024, almost. Dang it, that's so far away. Listen, we could always reevaluate that if needed. We could. Nobody would meet. Nobody would be mad. Our followers are very loyal and very kind. <laughs> but anyway, before we get into our disturbingly horrific case today. We are going to talk a little bit about this next organization that we are going to be donating to. Luckily, Katie already gave us a F word in this one minute that we've been recording. So that's awesome. My goal is to get her to beat me and my numbers every time now. Not going to work. Not going to happen. <laughs> but if you listen to our last episode, you will have learned that we donated to the Prisoners Legal Services of Massachusetts. We had a total of 48 fucks. And as a result, we rounded up $2 and donated $50. Um, of course, you were more than welcome to match that donation if we had to choose between giving us money from Buy as a Coffee or to the organizations that we donate to or of your choice, of course. We would obviously prefer donating to these causes. Thousand percent. We actually, speaking of, received a message from someone who would like to remain anonymous. And this someone sent us a screenshot of proof of donation to this organization, and they doubled our donation and donated $100. That is amazing. They actually have been donating to our swear jar causes as well, mm -hmm. just following along, always messaging us, giving mm -hmm. us their thoughts on an episode that we've mm -hmm. covered, suggesting cases. Just wonderful. Friend of the podcast. Absolutely. For sure. Absolutely. Thank you so much. You know who you are. We cannot tell you enough how much we appreciate you. Truly, there are no words because that is very generous and unprompted. Like so just a generous gesture. And I'm, I love that. There are good people out there. There sure are. And people like this give me hope. So thank you, anonymous friend. That being said, this time we are going to be donating. Now it's a new set of swears and we are going to be donating. Katie? This organization is called Haven. They are the largest violence prevention and support service agency in New Hampshire. Amazing. They are dedicated to addressing public health through violence prevention. I'm reading this off of their website, by the way. They provide services to improve the well-being of children and families. They prevent abuse. They provide support for those impacted by domestic and sexual violence. And they do so much for prevention of sexual assault, domestic violence, stalking. They support truly any person. And they recognize that it does not have to be just women that face these kinds of violences. They truly recognize that this is an everybody issue. And they have such wonderful resources. One of the things on their website is a close quickly option that allows someone to close out of the website quickly if they're not in a safe environment. Right. There are a lot of resources to help someone that you know who is going through these things who may not be able to advocate for themselves in that moment. They just 
provide the community with so many resources. I know that at Great Bay Community College where I was, they were always on campus making themselves known. There were stickers in all of the stalls in all of the bathrooms so that someone could go into the bathroom and see their hotline and maybe safely make a quick call or a text. Right. I love that. Fabulous resource. That's wonderful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they are a great organization. And the most wonderful part, too, is that they are accepting volunteers always. So if you are from New Hampshire or in the New Hampshire area, you can go to you can go to havennh.org and sign up to be a volunteer. I think it's such a great organization. Obviously, we're donating to it, but it's it really is important for people. And I, you know, as much as we make fun of men a lot on this show, (laughs) we are are obviously aware that men are also abused, are also stalked, and of course, they should get help too. Mm-hmm. And if, also, of course, there's a stigma around male mental health, and that's unfair. So I think this is great that they recognize and help all genders, which is really important. So a great organization, guys, please feel free to check out their website. Like I said, havennh.org. Check it out. See what you guys think. Um, obviously, we always encourage for donation for all of these charities, but we know that that's not always a thing that can happen, and that's fine. At least being aware of it and mm-hmm. promoting it. If you know someone who maybe needs help, it's a great resource to have. And they have the phone number to call. They have a number to text right there on the front of the website. So use it if you need it. No we're really excited to be donating to this cause. Yes, absolutely. So good find, Katie. She always finds the good ones. Thank you. I like to, I don't know, there's a couple I have on a list. Oh, okay. Just for backups that relate to true crime, that are in New England and that we can donate to easily. But you guys, please keep sending us organizations for our swear jar topics. Yes. Yes. We are not going to stop doing this anytime soon. Ever, probably. You guys know, especially if you've been hanging around for a while, that we curse like sailors. I cut out a lot, guys. (laughs) Like, I really do. So... We normally have more than that. Yeah, and which I is cut kind them of out. crazy. But, you know, if we can turn our foul mouths into something a little bit more charitable, sure. we are more than happy to do so. And it's just, it's a fun thing to do. Mm-hmm. It's a unique thing to our podcast. Absolutely. So, yeah, just thank you guys for being here. And if you guys want to donate, always encourage that. It's always something that is a good idea, no matter where you are, who you are, what you're donating to. Unless it's PETA. Don't donate Fuck PETA. PETA. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, like PETA, today our episode is atrocious. Truly. It involves a very sad... One of those cases, I think, any case that involves children really tugs at the heartstrings, whether you have children or not. And this is no exception. I think it's so, you know, and we always say too, of course, a crime against any person, horrific. Awful. Nobody deserves it. No. But with children, there's that element of, they they truly are innocent. Right. You know, of course, victims of a crime are innocent to begin with. You don't ask for that. You don't do anything to deserve that. Yeah. Nothing you can really do to prevent it. Atrocious. Yeah. For a child- it's heartbreaking. That's the most vulnerable 
little tiny human out there. They don't deserve any of that times a thousand. Right. And I think that's why a lot of people get emotional, like in movies regarding children death and animal death. Yeah. Because they're both, that's a very vulnerable, innocent, typically population. And so it's like they have no chance to fend for themselves at all. You know, so it's always heartbreaking. So this one is a tough one, guys. If you are triggered by child death, which I mean, I think we all are in a way, but if it's really something you can't listen to, then we'll see you next week. This is a pretty rough one. Yeah. Peace out, guys. No pressure anytime to stay and stick around for an episode that we do. I'll recap it right now. It is sad. There, you've listened. (laughs) But if you're okay with it and you're curious, definitely stick around because it's worth the listen. And without further ado, today we will be covering Julianne McCrary. Okay, Katie, let me know what you've got for sources today. I have very little, personally. I have very little, but always here to save the day, starting it off so strong. So strong. Murderpedia, bitch. Absolutely. Guys, if you can, donate to Wikipedia, donate to Murderpedia. It's donations that keep them running and they're great resources well maybe not wikipedia so much but murderpedia fantastic so great resource katie don't know if we'd have half the episodes we do without those two sources honestly honestly (laughs) followed by patch.com another great one Mm. masslive.com and foster's daily democrat times two nice okay i i mean i had murderpedia that's a given I also use Foster's Daily Democrat, which when that comes up, great resource. I love, I love them. I use the Exeter Patch page, an article from CNN and an article from Daily Mail, which I know isn't always reliable. What I did like about it was the amount of pictures Mm -hmm. and the little description that it gave. And I, every, article I look at that I even think about putting information in, I cite just in case. So that one was probably my least used, but I did look at it. So I just threw it in there. Perfect. All right, Katie, what do you think? Should we start this terrible, terrible story? Let's get into it. Okay. On May 14th, 2011 in South Berwick, Maine, which is just barely beyond the border of New Hampshire, like just outside of Dover, Rollinsford, that area, very close to where we are right now, Katie. A couple who lived on Dennett Road noticed something kind of odd. First, they noticed a vehicle that was clearly out of place. It was a quiet rural road that just was not, like, it was neighbors and friends, and that was it. Nobody else was really going down this road. It was a truck that they had never seen before. Just weird. The truck was described as a blue Toyota Tacoma. It was a pickup truck and was seen on the road by those neighbors and those local residents. Supposedly, it had an extended cap and a full cap over the bed of the truck. Do I know what this means? (laughs) Very vaguely. Very vaguely. I did have to Google it because I was like, blue truck. That's all I had. (laughs) Anything to do with cars, my brain goes to a whole other place. Yep. So same here. Oh, yeah. Additionally, at least one of the residents who saw the truck noted that it had a Navy insignia placed either on or around the license plate. For a little while, it seemed like this random car was just out of place and it was just something that people noticed. But it wasn't until later that evening when people made a more disturbing discovery that they were like, does this weird truck have something to do with this weird, awful discovery we just made? 
And those people, those are murderino, true crime junkies for sure. Around 5 p.m. that day, Dennett Road resident, who has easily the coolest name I've ever heard, Manly Grove. What a name. What a name. If he shows that himself, oh, hell yeah. That is a dope name. Manly, if you were born with that, oh, God bless you. Hell yeah. Unfortunately, Manly did make a very disturbing discovery. He noticed a bright green blanket on the ground about 30 feet from the road. And underneath the blanket was the body of a young boy, which was at a glance estimated to be between four and five years old, laying clearly dead. It's unsure at this point how long he had been dead. We'll learn later that it was not super long, so decomposition had not even set in yet. He probably was still, like, in rigor. So it was, like, very obvious this kid was dead. He was described as being around three feet, eight inches tall, with dirty blonde hair and blue eyes. He weighed roughly 45 pounds, and they noticed he appeared to still have all of his baby teeth, which... That is such a sad detail, you know? Like, he was a baby! Cute little kid. He was also described as wearing a gray-colored camo hoodie, khaki pants, a navy blue shirt that read Aviator Series, and he wore brand new Lightning McQueen sneakers. And I saw a picture of those sneakers. I don't know if you did too, Katie. And that broke my heart, because, I mean, just a little kid loves cars and has new sneakers, and, like, how exciting. Ugh. Police estimated that that little boy had been laying there since about that morning. Immediately, and most obviously, police checked to see if there were any reports of a missing boy in Maine, and they found nothing. Because Maine is so close to New Hampshire and even Massachusetts, they decided to look in those states as well for a report of a missing boy matching the description, and they didn't find anything. So they were like, this boy is clearly not from here. And they were looking more into the states around New England, you know, and still nothing. On May 16th, about two days later, nobody had come forward looking for the boy, still, which is very disheartening, says Lieutenant Brian McDonough of the Maine State Police, quote, somebody has got to miss this child. Later, he added, we haven't gotten any leads, significant leads in identifying this child. But police had received at least 100 tips at this point, and it led nowhere. I think I even read somewhere that they got a report that they followed through with that was a little boy that was missing. And it was just, they went and checked it out, and the the boy was, like, right there. Yeah, by the time they showed up at the house, they were like, okay, there's a little boy staring at me who is literally the boy in the description but alive. <laughs> Breathing. Yeah. Not our kid. Yes. Got it. Right. <laughs> Obviously, police were reaching out to the public, giving everything they could about this little boy that they found. And I saw the picture they released. What they did was they took a picture of the boy dead, and then they photoshopped or recreated it so his eyes were open. And it, he didn't look as dead, but you can, now that we know he was, like, you can tell he was dead. Mm-hmm. Um, But with blue eyes, and it Looking at pictures of him, it's pretty accurate. He really did look like that that photo, mm-hmm. which is sad. So they released that. They released what he was wearing. And they also mentioned that blue truck. That interesting blue truck. It just was weird to those to Manly Grove, you know, on that road. Autopsy revealed that the child had long hairs on his jacket as well as his pants, 
underwear and around the crime scene tangled up in branches. So weird. The child's cause of death was determined to be mechanical asphyxiation, which means an outside source of pressure was applied and resulted in death. To further add to the cause of death being asphyxiation, there were small broken blood vessels called petechiae around the child's face and eyes, which meant that the child was conscious for most of the suffocation process. Breaks your heart. Knowing that he suffered, like that can prove to you that he suffered. Mm-hmm. Heartbreaking. On May 18th, a Massachusetts state police officer noticed a woman at a rest stop near Chelmsford, Massachusetts at about 10.20 a.m. She was in a truck fitting the exact same description of the truck leaving the dumping site of the child that police were actively searching for. You don't say. So, of course, her being a state police officer, she went over. She goes, hi. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> Do you, uh, nice truck you got there. Do you need help? Do you need anything? Nice weather we're having. Like, <laughs> whatever you just do. Yeah. Sweating. Yeah. <laughs> like, holy shit, this truck is the truck. Yeah. The state trooper went up to the woman. The woman stated, just first interaction, first words out of this woman's mouth were, quote, I killed my son. I want to kill myself. Can you imagine being that police officer? Walking up, being like, okay. This is this is what I was we were looking for. There is just one person in the car, it's a woman. Okay. And then gathering up the courage probably to walk over there, sweating. And then that happens. I don't know what I would do. I'd probably be like, come again. <laughs> one more time for people in the back. Uh yeah, maybe uh repeat that really loud into my walkie-talkie <laughs> so I can call for backup. Yeah. Holy shit. So, of course, she was immediately taken into custody. Like, right. you're coming with me. One, because you said you killed a child. Two, because you are clearly a danger to yourself. Right. You just told me you want to harm yourself. Right. You're coming with me. We're not taking our eyes off of you. Right. This is where we learn that this woman is 42-year-old Julianne McCrary. Turns out, DNA testing on the hairs found tangled in the bushes, yeah. on the child's clothing direct 100% definitive match to Julianne McCrary. So now it's like, okay, the story is adding up. Mm -hmm. She did first off say, I killed my son. And now we have hairs that are confirmed to be a match to hers. Shit. You know, I think probably everyone hopes that it's like a hoax and maybe this woman is crazy and that didn't really happen. But man, it was pretty obvious. It was then determined that the child found in the woods was six-year-old Camden Hughes the son of Julianne McCrary. The two were actually from Irving, Texas, which would explain why Camden was not reported missing in really any of New England, the area. Right. Not even close. Not even close. Yeah. Hundreds of thousands of miles away. So clearly he would not have come up in their search if they were sticking to the direct area. Right. Right. Just so awful. I hate to say it, but painfully clever. Yep. Absolutely. Even even though she was caught, I think she was caught a lot because of the truck being seen. Even in today's time, I think if you travel across so many states like that, you might have enough time to get away before somebody realizes something once the body's found. Not that I'm giving advice, but it's true. Like, you can. That is one way to do it. Mm -hmm. Julianne told police when she was taken into custody that she disposed of her son's body because she gave him too much cough syrup. Mm. 
investigators were able to piece together a timeline and also place them in the area because they were from Irving, Texas. Right. So they were trying to figure out what brought you here. Right. Why, why'd you kill your son? Why did you dispose of your son the way you did? Right. What is the plan? Yeah. So obviously when gathering information about the timeline, what happened, why did it happen, they learned a little bit of the history of Julianne McCreary and her son, who you look at the pictures of him, oh my god. Cutest kid ever. Blonde, blonde hair, the blue eye combo, oh, so cute. He looked like a typical little boy who loved trucks and mud and just, he was so cute. Broke my heart. Mm-hmm. So... Like you said, Katie, Julianne and Camden were from Irving, Texas. Not much is known about them, unfortunately, and I feel like that happens a lot. What is known mostly does involve a criminal history. She had been arrested at least twice on prostitution charges and once for possession with intent to distribute drugs. In 2004, she was sentenced to three years of probation for a felony conviction of possession of a controlled substance. Okay. Sounds like she probably got into just the wrong lifestyle. Mm -hmm. In 2009, she was sentenced to one year in prison for a misdemeanor conviction of prostitution. Now, obviously, Julianne had a son, Camden, that she killed. She also had an older son named Ian. He was 23 years old at this time, and he was in the Navy. So that would describe why she had the Navy insignia on her truck. Mm -hmm. Checks out. At the time of the murder of her son, Julianne was an auto parts delivery contractor, but she had also worked as a school bus driver and a cement mixer. In a horribly disgusting coincidence, Julianne actually wrote a book. It was called Good Night Sleep Tight, and it was about how to get a night of good rest. I think that comes around in the most disgusting way. Because as we learned from the autopsy, Katie, she suffocated her son. Mm-hmm. So. Ah. And also said she gave him too much cough syrup. Yeah. So, yikes. Mm-hmm. Family and friends of Julianne describe her as someone who was prone to mood swings. However, she loved Camden and never raised her voice at him. In fact, almost all of her family and friends who saw her and knew her with Camden said they would have never predicted this ever 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 which we do hear that a lot about criminals and times when this does happen and i feel like sometimes it's just something like this is just so random yeah you know people even after they found out that she had killed her son were saying this isn't her like she loved her son again hard to believe when they kill them but then you kind of hear their reasoning quote unquote behind why they did and you're like you were very mentally ill, you know? It's very sad. When he was found, the clothes that I described, those were brand new clothes. Autopsy report says he was clean and very clearly not malnourished, so he was taken care of. Julianne was also known to suffer from mood swings in which she would occasionally disappear on, quote, road trips, but always came back home, which is interesting. Camden, on the other hand, was clearly very loved. He was described as gifted and talented. He was a bright student at W.T. Haynes Elementary School, where he went to kindergarten. Kindergarten! His teacher, upon learning about his death, said, quote, McCreary extinguished a bright star before he even had a chance to graduate from kindergarten. Wow. That, 
really made me sad. Oh, that's so awful. Yeah. According to the mother of Julianne's on-again, off-again boyfriend, Shirley Miller, not the father of Camden, Julianne was prone to have, quote, wild times. Supposedly, she didn't know who Camden's biological father was, which that's not necessarily, that happens a lot, like, you know, whatever. Shirley Miller also described Julianne as easily exasperated and became easily angry at the world. But she also said, most notably, that she never saw this coming. Interesting. It's so awful because you can be so many things at once. You can be a wonderful, loving, doting mother. And you could also be mentally ill. You can be impulsive. You can have a low frustration tolerance. But you also can be all of those things and still take a deep breath and be a good mom and not have those things and remove those tendencies from your parenting style. Absolutely. So she genuinely was, up until this point, a wonderful mom. Yeah. I mean, her kid was in brand new clothes. It's not like he was abused. He didn't have a scratch on him aside Mm -hmm. from his injuries related to his death. Right. And, you know, everyone that was talking about him said that he was very gifted and, like, was Mm -hmm. already able to read well and count well. And he was just really talented. And it's very clear, like his teacher said, that he had a lot of promise in his future. I saw that the reason he was such a great student, such a gifted student, is because he went into school already having the knowledge to read, to count, because Julianne would take him to the library, spend hours there with him. It was his favorite place. She would read to him. She would read with him. She spent hours and hours and hours teaching him, ensuring that he would be a good student and have the tools he needed to succeed. So she was a great mom. Right. Until she... Until she murdered her child. (laughs) So what happened? Exactly. Yeah. Very bizarre. We know that on May 12th, 2011, Julianne and her son Camden had arrived in Maine. Julianne wanted to go to Maine because she was under the impression this was the only place where she could purchase castor beans. Interesting. Notably, castor beans are a kind of seed that contain a toxic substance called ricin. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like how seeds on certain fruits Mm -hmm. contain arsenic. Right. Like apple seeds are, in large quantities, have, well, deadly amounts of arsenic. Yep. Peach pits, the same same kind of thought process. Yep. Julianne had actually, on one occasion, attempted suicide by taking castor beans. This was before Camden was born. Mm-hmm. But she said that she planned to take these beans again to commit suicide after the murder of her son. Right. So this was premeditated. Clearly. The two of them spent the next day, May 13th, at Hampton Beach in Hampton, New Hampshire. I'm sure Camden was thrilled. It's a great beach. Irving, Texas. No, no be- beach. <laughs> Far from a beach. Right. That might have been his first time going to a beach. Oh. That's sad. Oh, that's so sad. That that was me speculating, but I think the thought of it makes it really sad. Oh, I know. What if she wanted to take him to the beach so they could have just a nice day before she murdered him? Yeah. Oh, my God. Mm -hmm. After their day at the beach, they checked into the Stone Gable Inn Motel. That night, Julianne gave Camden NyQuil because, quote, she didn't want him to be lucid when she smothered him early the next morning. I do want to say, when I was younger and I took NyQuil for the first time, I called my mom into my room crying because I thought I was drunk. 
And I was like, probably like 10. And I was so scared. I was like, because when I put my head down, this is what I told her. When I put my head down on the pillow, I could hear my brain. <laughs> and I was just really scared. And I mean, NyQuil does make you kind of loopy if you mm-hmm. take too much of it. And also really tired. I mean, it's NyQuil. Even DayQuil can do that to you. So I can see why maybe she would think that that would help, quote unquote, to put him to sleep so she could enact the next part of her plan. Mm-hmm. So awful. It's terrible. Once Camden fell asleep, Julianne picked him up, put him face down on a pile of pillows that she had set up by going around the motel room and gathering these pillows and making them into this intricate pile for this. She put him face down on the pillows and then knelt on top of his back to force him down into the pillows. So, and she's 42 years old. This is a six-year-old. That's a lot of weight on top of him mm-hmm. into, oh, the images I got in my Awful. head were so, so sad. Julianne told police that he struggled for about three to four minutes before finally going limp. Yeah, she said he was flailing his arms, kicking his legs. Can you imagine? And she stayed on him. Ugh. She then wrapped his body in the green fleece blanket which Julianne's boyfriend's mother, like you said, Liz, she babysat Camden, adored him. Mm-hmm. She said she recognized that blanket as his security blanket. Yeah. So that's even more fucked up. Like, it's not just a blanket from the motel bed right. or that she had lying around. That was his security blanket as a six-year-old child. Right. Oh, my God. She then put him in the bed of the truck before driving to the dirt road just over the border of New Hampshire, where, as we know, she dumped his body. Right. In the days after Camden's murder and prior to her being found and arrested, Julianne had called Camden's school every day in between to let them know he would be absent because he had appendicitis. What did she think was going to happen when he never came back to school? He died of appendicitis. Like, how do you... It's 2011. People haven't been dying of appendicitis, especially not children, for right. like 80 years. It's appendicitis. Right. And it's so crazy because police thought that, okay, she's doing this. She's covering her ass. Yeah. They thought that she wanted to go back to Texas and live a normal life after. Right. Because clearly there had been days, multiple days, where he was dead. Right. And she was, what, putzing around yeah, New she, England in that dump ass truck. She like, didn't get very far. No, I don't know what she was doing. She clearly did not enact her plan to commit suicide. Right. What is she doing? Driving around with the castor beans? Yeah, what's up with that? I don't understand. Very weird. There's a lot of things I don't understand clearly, like how a mother could murder her child like that. Right. But that is one of the many things of this case I do not understand. Yeah. In November of 2011, which was really only six months, give or take, after Camden's death, her trial began. It was in New Hampshire because they believed that she killed him in that hotel in Hampton, New Hampshire. At her trial, Julianne pled guilty. Senior Assistant Attorney General Susan Morell shared with the judge that the reason Julianne had killed her son was because, well, quote, she didn't think he could be raised well without her, quote implying that Julianne's plan was to also kill herself. Okay, so why is she on trial here, like, alive? Exactly. Yeah. Morella also said in court, 
Quote, she said no one else in her family was fit to raise him if she was dead, and she didn't want him to be raised by social services. Okay. Also, you didn't kill yourself. And like we said, his body was discovered and most likely he was killed on May 13th. She wasn't found until May 18th. Didn't take you very long to kill your son and work yourself up to kill your son, but it takes you five days to maybe kill yourself? Right, with the castor beans that you drove from Texas to Maine to acquire. That you've had for almost a week? Mm-hmm. Um, okay, sure. Susan Morell, this assistant attorney general, also stated that she didn't believe the whole murder-suicide thing, mostly because her chosen method was the castor beans, something she had attempted to kill herself with before, but failed. Thank you. So she knew maybe it probably wouldn't work again. Okay, bitch. You're really not doing a great job of killing yourself right here. And I wish I wish she would have. And not her son. You know? I hate to say it. It's atro- absolutely atrocious. Yeah. What was also noted by Susan Morell at the trial was that Julianne had a very superficial cut on her wrist, which was under a Band-Aid, which was probably like a poor attempt to be like, See? I slashed my wrists. I want to die. But it was barely superficial. Like, she probably had droplets of blood. She didn't sever her artery or any of her veins. So, I'm sorry, but she's not really trying. No, and she's not selling it very well either, which is what gets me. Yeah. Because it's like, do not play that card to try to get off of your son's murder. Right. In court, I think the defense was really trying to play on, like, insanity. So she was asked if she was seeing a doctor or if she'd ever been diagnosed with any sort of mental illness. Her answer was no. However, she did mention being on an antidepressant and an anti-anxiety med, which I believe started after she was in custody. Oh, wow. So even if it hadn't been clearly it wasn't working and also then she would have been diagnosed with mental illness because you need that to get those medications speaking from someone with mental illness Mm -hmm. at her sentencing julianne stated i am sorry to have caused the intense pain and suffering to my precious son camden he did nothing wrong whatsoever to deserve that by my hand and he was not an inconvenience to me she also referred to him as life's music and said that he was special then why'd you kill your son you did a really good job at silencing the music that apparently is so special to you. That's your six-year-old child. I just don't get the logic behind her thinking. And maybe she didn't either. But, like, what? Right. Maybe she was in a mental health crisis. Maybe she was just very ill mm-hmm. and distraught, which is awful. No one should ever have to go through that. Right. But I just am glad that she... Whether she means this or not, I am glad that she apologized and said, you know, I I admit that I did this. I'm sorry to have done this. Right. I recognize that I caused him pain and suffering. Right. Like, good. You should have to sit with that for what you did because you, you killed a child. There's yeah. no reason. 100% agree with you. Julian's son, Ian, who we said was in the Navy and was the reason she had the Navy sticker on her truck, stated in court, I still love you a lot. You were always a great mother to me. It makes me sad that you will not see the greatness I will become in my life. I miss my brother, but I have forgiven you. That is, that gives me chills because just the way he's 
acknowledging that like you did this you killed my brother i loved him and now i'm gonna grow up and i'm gonna be successful and i'm gonna do really well and you're not gonna be there to see it you're not gonna be there to have a relationship with me but you're my mom like a very sad sentiment but very true and well said in the end julianne mccreary was sentenced to 45 years to life for the murder of her six-year-old son and as far as I could tell, she remains imprisoned in Goffstown, New Hampshire. Mm-hmm. So don't like that she's that close to us, but I guess she's, she's got to be somewhere. How awful. It's really sad. I feel for this little boy and the ones who loved him. Mm-hmm. It's very sad. And you just wonder what was going on through her head and why she had to make that choice. Well, guys... Let us know what you think about this case. Do you think perhaps Julianne was going through a mental health crisis? Do you think she was really going to kill herself? How do you think this was meant to play out in her eyes? You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at truecrimeny. All lowercase. Or you can send us an email at truecrimeny at gmail.com. We also have a website, truecrimene.com. Under our contact page, we have a handy-dandy submission tool where you can send us your thoughts on this case, other cases we've covered. Give us suggestions for cases to cover based in New England, please. You can leave your name if you so choose. You can be anonymous, of course. And we would love to hear your thoughts, any questions, comments, ideas that you have for us, ideas you have for cases in the future. Let us know if you leave your name and we cover a case that you suggest. We'll get a shout out at the top of the episode and stay tuned for the rest of our episodes and to hear how our swear jar count for this organization plays out. Absolutely. And with that, see you next week. Bye. Goodbye.